Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'll be buried in my Watching my fellow Americans with your host, Spike Collins. It's me. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Keep clapping. Thank you. Clap. Clap for the August miracle. How would we know? How would we know that you were here for the miracle? If you didn't keep clapping, welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. Thank you for joining me on this Wednesday, August the what is today? August the 11th. Thank you for joining me on this special day. What makes this day so special? You're here. Thank you for joining me. This is a Muddy Waters Media production. Check us out everywhere on all social media applications, on all uh, podcasting platforms, on everything. Check us out on uh, multiple extremist group lists. Check us out everywhere. We are everywhere. Uh, Join us especially on YouTube uh, and subscribe to us. Hit the bell so that your phone explodes with notifications every time. Uh, And also join us on anchor.fm slash muddiedwaters. You can listen to us there. You can also donate money. I'm not going to tell you you have to, but I mean, you don't not have to. 
But be sure to uh, like us, follow us, subscribe to us, comment, share, do all the algorithm helping things for us because we desperately need it, especially on Facebook where we've been shadow banned. Uh, so be sure to uh, to join us there. Thank you so much. And uh, also, uh, oh yeah, I said already on the bell. Share this right now. The last thing that I want is for you and your closest loved ones to miss out on a libertarian podcast on a Wednesday evening. I would hate for that to happen. Give the gift of Spike today. Kids love it. This episode is brought to you by, as always, the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. This started as a joke. It is now the second largest caucus in the Libertarian Party, which is, it says many things, both good and bad. But uh, if you'd like to become a part of the fastest growing and second largest caucus, uh, within the next year, we will overtake the, to become the largest caucus you can be a part of that, too. Uh, if you want to become a part of it, go to the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. And if you'd like to become an official voting member of the Waffle House Caucus, which means nothing because we don't actually vote on it. We don't actually do anything. But if you'd like to become a voting member, uh, if in at any point we start voting, uh, then go to muddywatersmedia.com slash store and pick up a Waffle House Caucus button or shirt. Kids love it. Gravy King. Cumberland Cannabis, if you're looking for high-quality CBD and Delta-8 products uh, that are viable, ethical, and effective, I'm told that's what they are. I've never actually used any of these. But if you would like to try for yourself and see if that catchphrase is actually true, uh, go to cumberlandcannabisco.com. Joe Soloski is running to be the next governor of Pennsylvania. Joe Soloski is the key to Pennsylvania's success. And uh, and by the way, that's a, that's a, a pun there because it's the Keystone State. Uh-huh. I, did, I didn't know that. Um, anyway, uh, if you'd like to help Joe become the first libertarian governor ever, then go to joesoloski.com. That's J-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I.com. Mudwater, the most accurately, uh, d- accurately named or, or appropriately named product that we've ever had on this show because we're Muddy Waters Media. Uh, if you woke up today and said, my gosh, if I never have another cup of coffee in my life, it'll be too soon. Well, then I have some great news for you because instead you could be drinking this weird assortment of things, masala chai, mushrooms, cacao, whatever cacao is, uh, turmeric and uh, sea salt and pepper, and that's it. Uh, then you can go to muddywatersmedia.com mud and try that. That tastes exactly like you think those things would taste it's not it's i mean coffee doesn't taste good either okay so you know this is about the same as that and it has about what's one seventh the caffeine of coffee which is just enough to get you as hyped up as i am right now but not so much that you then start crying by the end of the day which is what i would do if i were drinking coffee i mean results may vary but you probably should not end up crying if you are i would discontinue immediately muddywatersmedia.com slash mud to get yours today Thomas Queter for state senate. Thomas Queter runs better than the government, which is funny because he's in a wheelchair. He finds this funny. This is not a joke I would tell. He wants me to say that. So take that however you want to take it. Uh, Thomas Queter is running for state senate in uh, the 52nd district of New York. And uh, he's a fantastic guy. I've seen him firsthand. Uh, He is dedicated to the movement, to the party, and to the people of New York. Uh, And if you want to help him become uh, the first libertarian state senator in New York, uh, then go to Tom452, that's T-O-M-F-O-R-5-2.com. And if you'd like to be a part of his meme contest, where you can make memes like the one you're looking at right now, which 
is i mean he likes this stuff i am very uncomfortable with this but he likes it uh then go to tomfor52.com slash ftg for meme contest jack casey has written now three books why has he not sent me an upgraded graphic that has his third book you'd have to ask him because i don't know his books are the royal green and the in silver throned uh and also crowned by gold and are these books good? I don't know because I'll never read them ever. I refuse to read these books because if they're good, I will feel bad about making fun of them while he pays me to do so. And if they're bad, then I'll feel bad that I encourage you to buy them. So you'll have to find out for me if these books are good by going to theroyalgreen.com. He says they're good. He's not exactly unbiased. He wrote them and has a vested financial interest in you buying them. So I'm told by others it's, it's good too, though. TheRoyalGreen.com. Fierce Luxury by Ashley. Another product I know nothing about because I don't own any handbags. I guess by proxy I do because my wife does. Uh, Fierce Luxury by Ashley is an online consignment shop that has uh, high-end bags and accessories uh, like Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Gucci, and Herm, Hermes, Herm, Herms, Hermes, Her, like Gucci. Uh, You can consign with Ashley for a 30% fee, which is, I'm told by Ashley, is 20% less than most other consignment stores. And why would Ashley lie to you about that? She wouldn't. Uh, You can find them online at FierceLuxuryByAshley.com and on Facebook in their exclusive group, Fierce Luxury by Ashley. And speaking of exclusivity, Adderpan, the most horrifying game to ever be made ever. I really wish that they didn't give me money because I don't want to encourage anyone. I just, if you like being scared for the rest of your life then go on to steam and you can buy Adderpan for five dollars i don't know why they made this or why anyone plays it but people like it it has lots of jump scares or as i call them panic attacks here's here's their description looking for a game to haunt your dreams look no further than Adderpan, the premier release from irvin games Adderpan is a first person Five Nights style game featuring creepy characters, jump scares galore, and even a few Easter eggs, or as I call them, existential dread, hidden among amongst the game files themselves. Join Dolly and her haunted imaginary friends as you play the role of a school security guard trying to survive night shift, armed only with cameras and a flashlight. Can you make it until morning before they get a piece of you? This is literally the how they want... I, I don't know. This will make you want to have guns in schools. This game, I hate, I, so, I'm not into scary games, which is why I should have never tried this, but you should, I guess should, if you're into such a thing, I don't, I don't know, I don't know guys, but they're, you can choose whether you want to get it, it's $5 on Steam, and it'll come with all the updates, so that when it gets scarier in the future, you don't have to pay any more, which is good, because you'll be spending the rest of your money on therapy for the rest of your human existence. And my final get, my final uh, sponsor is if uh, my telling you, if you feel like suing someone because of the time I've wasted telling you about these products, then I have some great news for you. Because if you live in Florida, you can sue me, but I'll actually use him to counter sue you. Uh, his name's Chris Reynolds. He's a personal injury attorney. ChrisReynoldsLaw.com, and he will get you all the money uh, it, that you need if you get actually injured. But don't come to him with something like frivolous. Like he's, I mean, he might take it. I don't know, but don't do that. Like have an actual injury. Don't, don't call him because of this. 
the intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. You can check him out on Facebook, on his SoundCloud. Uh, you can go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. Go buy his entire discography right now. Well, after the show. Go to his Bandcamp. Buy all of it. He just had a new album that dropped. Go and buy everything. Buy everything that's there. I think you can buy the entire thing. You're going to love it, all of it. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Le Bleu for this delicious water that I'm drinking on this episode. Le Bleu is BPA-free, non-carbonated, kosher certified, and made in America, just like me. I don't know if I'm BPA-free, but if I am, then I'm just like this water. I'm also not kosher certified because they don't do that to people. Good water, though. Shout out to Tara on Turks' mom, and as always. Folks, my guest tonight is uh, actually a South African native who now lives in the U.S. Um, she is the chief executive officer of Daisy International uh, and also the regional director and educator for Club Z. The reason I'm having her on is because she has some incredible insights into the issues affecting both South Africa and the U.S., and uh, I can't wait to talk with her about it. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, uh, please welcome to the show uh, Mrs. Uh, Olga Meshway Washington. Did I said that correctly, right? You did. You did. I'm really excited. Thank you so much, Olga, for coming on the show. I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you for having me, Spike. It's, it's been a long time coming. I'm glad we were able to pinpoint a Wednesday evening. And hello to all <laughs> of your viewers and everybody that's listening. Yeah, so we have been trying to book this since, I think, May or June. And mostly my fault. But we finally got it to work, and um, this is—it's great. I, I love having you on. And can, are we allowed to say the thing about your the connection you have to the show? Yeah, yeah, sure. Go okay. ahead. So you are well. You you tell them. Tell us. Tell us your connection to the show. The connection to the show. Uh -huh. So the connection to the show is for everybody that tunes in and even if tonight was your first time there was some cool vibey music right in the beginning and the uh, what do they call them the composer of that yes. piece of music is my husband he is actually the reason why I am currently located in the United States of America we can go into that part of the journey later yes. um but yeah so my husband uh, Mr. Joshua Washington a fine man if I may add myself he's a person <laughs> that composed uh, the intro to my fellow Americans yes Joe Davi himself is uh, Joe, Davi. Is Joe Davi, Joshua Washington. Uh, it has it was fun watching you guys go from friends to which I was shipping that relationship very early on and, and was telling Joshua that to then uh, uh, I think you went straight into boyfriend and girlfriend and then fiance and then and now married and with children. And everything. I've, I've for many years enjoyed having you on and it now culminates finally the whole purpose of having this show and having him do the intro and outro was so that one day I could have you as a guest. Finally, <laughs> the show, the character arc for the show has been complete and I, I'm very, very happy to have you on. So uh, as, as you did mention, you now live in the States, but you are originally from you were actually born in South Africa, right? Correct. Born and raised. Okay. And so just uh, so that uh, I, because I, I'm not sure if I know this, were you actually alive during apartheid or did that happen after you were born? I was alive. Um, they say age ain't nothing but a number. So I'm not ashamed to disclose my age. I was born in 1981 and oh, okay. apartheid ended in 1994. So um, a good chunk of my childhood was still underneath apartheid rule. Okay, so you have quite a few, because I was trying to remember when apartheid ended. I thought it was in somewhere in the mid to late 80s, but it wasn't until 94 that apartheid ended? Correct. 
So the official date is actually when the new democracy, the new government was ushered in. And that happened when all people in South Africa, all South African citizens went to the polls. And that was on the 27th of April, 1994. So almost 95. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, that's I was way later than I thought it was. That shows me how little I know about the history, which is why we have you on. So you actually have quite a few memories. You were what up to when you were 13 that you, that you lived under apartheid. Was that 94? Yeah, wow. I was I was 12 turning 13. So before we get into how that affects today, can you tell us a little about what that was like and how things changed, I guess, after apartheid rule ended for you personally? Um, I do need to say that, first of all, I was very blessed to have parents that were careful in our upbringing. So we lived under the oppression of the system that existed at the time. And I'll give some insights into that now. But my parents raised my brother, sister and I, I'm the oldest of three kids, to know that we ourselves were not oppressed. The system was oppressive. They looked at us, they being the powers that be, the white powers that be, looked at people like myself and others with our same skin color, same hair texture. Um, as lesser than we were just morally inferior racially inferior but that we ourselves were not so my memories are pretty much juxtaposed against the intrinsic value that I got when I was at home based off how society saw me so society saw me and others like me as people with whom they could not sit next to by law black people were separated from white people we couldn't go to the same public schools. Um, I was fortunate enough to attend a private school later on. Um, so I had the option of that mix of black and white. But you still, in the transportation systems, you know, you would still, you were separated. Um, right, right. Public beaches, um, um, hospitals, black and whites were, were separate. Um, and even in terms of living conditions and areas where you lived in, I grew up in an area in Johannesburg, South Africa, called Phosphorus. And it is one of many townships. Townships was the name that was given to the segregated areas where Black people lived. Um, oftentimes they had found us, when I say they found us, they moved us there. But that's got a history of its own. So here we were as Black people in the township. And then there was no person of any other color in that particular area. And so when we would leave the township, then you would see people of different colors. Again, very minimal interaction, if at all. Uh, so I remember, you know, coming home and it's just Black people. And it didn't, it didn't really, I guess, as a child, like hit you because, you know, children and even as you grow up, right. you're for the most part colorblind. But right. it was mainly when I went to high school as well as um, university, we call it university in South Africa, that I truly began to experience apartheid for myself on an individual level. I mean, on a family level, it was there. Obviously, there wasn't the right to vote. So 1994 was amazing for my family. My parents had right. the right to vote. Now, finally, my grandparents had the right to vote, um, yeah. neighbors. So I remember that being a very, very large celebration. I think, though, in terms of noticing that there was a change with where South Africa was going to go, I can clearly remember in 1992, there was a referendum that was called by the government of the day, the National Party. And pretty much that referendum was asking the citizens, not the black citizens, just the white citizens, whether they actually thought um, black people should be given the right to vote and there should be full integration of society by all South African citizens, irrespective of race. And I remember the 
announcement of that referendum being made known, and it was a yes, and there really being jubilation, jubilation by obviously all black people, by many white people too, and a little bit of um, unhappiness by a significant number um, of the white society. And, and that for me was when, as a young girl, what was I, 1992, so I was nine, nine years old. Can I do my math? No, I was, I was help me here. I was 10, I was 11. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was 10, somewhere there. Okay, it's late at night. Oh, by the way, talking about <laughs> late at night and needing coffee, that mud water, we need to have a conversation because I'm not sure that that mud water tastes better than coffee. Anyway, um, but I remember that being a moment when I was like, wait, something big is about to happen. Uh, yeah. To be clear, I didn't say it tastes better than coffee. I said it tastes roughly the same as coffee. Uh, I would definitely, oh, I didn't say that. So for anyone who would like to try mud water, if you would, um, you definitely want to add some honey to it or something, maybe some sugar. It's not, have you tried mud water? Is that why you're saying that? I have, I have not. I have okay. not. But you see, I can yeah. drink coffee black and I think it's amazing. So if we need to have honey to the mud water, I'm not so sure. Okay. Well, listen, maybe you might, if you can drink coffee black, maybe you'd like some hot mushroom water. I don't know. Um, so, uh, Okay, so that's an interesting perspective. So your parents told you, and, and I want to make sure I'm saying this correctly, you lived in an oppressive system, but you yourselves were not oppressed. Can you tell me what that, can we dive a little bit more into what exactly that meant? Because it sounds like you said some of the first things that personally affected you with apartheid was when you were older, when apartheid had actually ended, um, had already, or at least had ended uh, uh, structurally or whatever uh, at a governmental level. But can we talk about first what that means when you say that you were not actually oppressed? So, not being oppressed with regards to who we were as a people, our okay. value, the goals that we could have, what we could accomplish, what we could achieve. Um, okay. The system was oppressive in that it would tell us no. I mean, I have a story, maybe if I can share as an example, when I was in high school, I saw a young man who had this white, amazing blazer. So in South African public schools, you have school uniforms. And at the high school that I was at, but only high school, we had these ugly colored mustard, black and white striped blazers. Um, and there was this, uh, this young man who had this gorgeous white blazer. And I remember saying, I want that blazer. And I was told, matter of fact, that no, you won't get it because you're black and no black person has got it and so I remember going home and telling my parents I said they were like what do you want and I was like I want that blazer and so they were like you can get that blazer go find out what the requirements are and go get that blazer so here again was uh, the reaffirmation that the system told us that we couldn't people okay. told us that we couldn't um, but if we chose that we wanted to we could would it mean that we would have to work harder? Yes. Would right. it mean that we would be denied it a couple of times until the system changed? Yes. But with regards to who we were as a people, there was nothing that we could do. That is that is a really... Excuse me, nothing that we I, I could get, not do. My apologies. No, right, nothing right, that we right. Could right. Do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is an incredible outlook to have and kind of a necessary one to have in a system like that, that we're going to insist that we have these things and we're going to fight as hard. And yes, it is mean we're going to, it does mean we're going to have to fight harder, but we're not going to simply step, step back and say, well, we're black or, you know, in, in the past we're Jewish or we're Scots Irish or whatever the, you know, people that were being oppressed in any given place at any given time, just saying, okay, well, that's my lot in life because of an intrinsic thing I have no control over. It just means I'm going to have to fight harder for that thing. I'm going to have to work harder for that thing. That's an incredible thing to instill in a kid. Now you said that it was actually, it's, sounded like when you said high school and university so this would be after apartheid ended that you actually experienced your kind of I guess personal uh um uh personal connection to apartheid can you tell us a little bit about what that means 
Of course. Um, so just to be clear for purposes of the people that are listening, so there was definitely the experience of it as a family, but because um, now we knew that these were what the boundaries were, it wasn't really tested with regards to how people personally felt towards each other, if I'm making sense. So we very okay. well knew that the system was oppressive and there was a bad date. And so in the reaction, in the interactions that you had with people, it was the system's fault almost, or people hiding behind the system. But when a bad date then finally fell from a political perspective, um, there was still a lot of its lingers, both in people's hearts as well as the attitudes. And also the right. brilliance of how apartheid work was worked was that even though uh, politically right at the top and from a governmental level, there was this, you know, unison, this government of national unity and black people right. could go and frequent places where they couldn't before. Because of the architecture of apartheid, how people behave towards each other, even with regards to hiring as well as the way that, um, you know, admissions at universities and that those type of things worked, it, it took a long time. So right. my first real tangible one-on-one experience that I can remember clearly was at university. And I was campaigning for a seat on the um, Student Representative Council, myself and others that were also interested in serving in a governance uh, position on campus. Mm -hmm. And I then at the, um, I think it was a local field, there were uh, guys that were handing out flowers to to ladies. And I was like, oh, I want a flower. Let's go get a flower. And I was told, matter of fact, you know, you can't get a flower, you're black. And I was like, but I... I, I, I don't understand. So one, you're correct in terms of this is after apartheid. So that, that question is also like, but we're all the same. We're all here together, right? We're all right. on university campus together. And they're like, no. And that hurt because I was like, all right, yeah. but you literally are, you have no idea who I am. You're judging me purely based on the color of the skin. And for something so trivial, like a flower, a flower you're denying right. that, a flower. So imagine all the other things that I would be denied and, and had been denied up until that point, but it didn't really sting as much as when it was one of your colleagues, somebody that was your, your age doing that to you. That's interesting. So you mentioned that, you know, often people were just hiding behind the system. So that sounds like very often in terms of like institutional denial or, or, or institutional mistreatment, it was often a white person that was maybe even reluctant and like, well, I wish I didn't have to do this, but you know how it is. is am, I, am I saying that? So it was like, we're, we have similar things. It's not necessarily race-based, but we're, you know, you'll have someone in government that's just like, well, I'm just doing my job. I wish it wasn't like this, but so that same type of thing. So I, I guess, and this is the caricature that, that you would have, or I would have of the, so it wasn't, you know, these evil white people that were, oh, I want to fi finally have a chance to oppress black people today. Very often it was just someone who's like, sorry, this is my job. This is what the paper, the what the, the regulation says or whatever. You can't have this or you have to go through this extra hoop or whatever. So there was some kind of institutional reluctance there, it sounds like. There was both. So okay. so there were some people who were like, you know what, I wish I could, but I can't. Um, right. And who were genuine in that statement. And then there were some who were very lazy, who did not have any intention of doing anything that was going to require them to potentially think about the other person and treating them like a human being. And then there were others right. who were applauding the system and saying, yes, this is right. the way that life should work because you are lesser right. than. So it was a combination of both. Yeah, yeah. So it's a combination of I'm just doing my job or I like this, or mm -hmm. I mean, I'm shocked to hear a lazy government worker. That's, I've never heard of such a thing. That, that must be, Only that must be a, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that must be some foreign thing because that certainly doesn't exist here. All of our government workers are very industrious. So, um, okay. So, uh, so then even after apartheid ends, there's that apartheid thinking. 
of mm-hmm. okay, you can you can take away our system, but we're yeah. still going to mistreat ag- yeah. black people as an abstract, like not you as an individual, but we're going to mistreat an entire group of people because of our feeling of superiority or and or our bitter bitterness that we lost this system. Now you you've talked about and what actually sparked my wanting to have you honestly I was looking for an excuse to have you on the show and this finally was a, a valid one a valid pretext for me to ask you um was um uh, your uh, husband Joshua had shared uh a story uh, about something you had gone through and and persevered through uh and I believe it was in was it was that in college that the story that mm-hmm. he told okay yeah. can you tell us about that Sure. It's actually linked to the story of the um, the flowers. So the campaigning for the student uh, representative council, the student government of the day, was that and, you know, everybody's wanting votes and da da da, da And um, thankfully, I was able to get elected onto the student representative council. But not only was I then a council member, I actually sat on the executive what was interesting is as a council member, there were other political parties that were represented and one of them was the Avia Beer. Now, if anybody wants to do their research on South Africa, or if you have done your research on South Africa, there is a prominent Afrikaner figure in the 19, the late 1980s and definitely the early 1990s called Eugene Tarablanche. I mean, you want to talk racist? This man was full on racist. It was, it was incredible. Um, and so there was a youth wing of his party Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Afrikaner uh, Bruderbund, and they had a youth wing, and um, those young men pretty much took on with absolute uh, candor and um, full confidence the ethos of their party, and that was we want nothing to do with black people. You are lesser than pretty much if they could call us garbage to our face. I'm sure they did. And wow. so within the council where we would sit down, they would have no black person sit next to them. Like if a black person tried to stick next to them, they would get up and move. And it wasn't just that political party. There were also other individual members on the council who wanted nothing to do with a black person. Anyway, so sitting um, at these meetings was very interesting to observe this. And then as an executive member, I was assigned a committee that would work with me. And in the first year of me serving on student government, I was responsible for all of the societies on campus. So I think in the uh, US um, form, that would be your different... um, Hmm. Society, almost like your different clubs. I think that's what you got, would call them, Spike, like your different, uh, um, let's just call them clubs because I, I can't think okay. of what. Yeah. And, and, and I didn't go to college and I didn't go to college. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you know, well, like, like if, they, if they're like a math club and a, and a particular okay. sporting club. Anyway, so I was responsible for those. Um, and in my committee were some of the most racist young men and racist young women that I'd ever come across. And Spike, can I tell you, they would not talk to me. They would not attend my meetings um, unless they had to, because you were required to attend a minimum. And if they attended the meetings, they would just sit there and not do anything. I was unable to accomplish anything for the first few weeks until a thought dawned on me. And that thought was, we're looking in the year 2001. So not too long, about six years after the fall of a birthday. And in those six years, obviously, there's a lot of um, tearing down of the systemic uh, or these structures, at least, that ensure that there was systemic oppression. And so these young people felt threatened. So, for example, Afrikaans, which was 
one of the main languages it was one of the two official languages was now relegated to something that people were like ah we don't want to do anything with it anymore the university of pretoria which is where i was became instead of just an institution where afrikaans was the medium of instruction there was now dual learning so the status of Afrikaans was no longer something that was that important. English was now there as well as a medium of instruction, which then allowed the likes of me to come onto campus and also get an education and do well in that. People right. were no longer speaking of Afrikaans. And the Afrikaans culture, which they held very proudly, was now something that was just like, ah, it's, it's that of the oppressor and moving along. And here's an introduction right, right, of right. other cultures and, and, and other um, languages, all very, very important. But when the... Mm-hmm all on the rah, rah, rah of this and everything else is evil, um, the thought dawned on me that they may actually feel threatened. And so the idea came that why don't you meet them at a place that's important to them? And that was their language. And so what Olga then started to do, as crazy as, as the idea was, was I started to speak Afrikaans to them and only Afrikaans. I'd already knew how to speak kind of Afrikaans because that was a subject that we had to study. Um, in high school, again, a remnant of, of apartheid, you had to study this language, but I wasn't very proficient in the language. And so I taught myself how to speak and I would only speak to them in these languages. Can I tell you, Spike, after a couple of um, months, it could have even have been weeks, I could call a meeting at six o'clock in the morning and they were there. I was the wow. only black person who was allowed to sit next to them at our council meetings. And it really was, I think, the fact that they realized that here was a human being and here was another human being. And even with our differences, and they didn't even have to like me, but we learned to work together because ultimately we were like, we don't have to be threatened. She seems to meet us where we are. She's okay with speaking our language. And um, we were able to accomplish amazing things together. And so this is, so first of all, for those who don't know, Afrikaans is, it's, a, it's kind of, a, it's a language that's based in, uh, is it Dutch? It's a European language, but it's also, it's the, I guess, like a, you can explain it better than me, I'm sure. It's derived from Dutch. Okay. So one of the things from a South African history perspective is that we were um, colonized by the Dutch as well as by the English. And um, this language, the Dutch language, within uh, transformed it a little bit, then was known as Afrikaans, and it was the Afrikaners, so people that descended from, from Holland, from the Dutch, this was their language. And, and so really, when people spoke about this is the language of the oppressor, that was the language of the oppressor. Right. Okay. So by it's having English now being the, I guess, universal language as opposed to Afrikaans, it was both a symbolic victory in that we were no longer, you know, th- that would the language of the oppressor was now supplanted by a more common language used by everyone and also the actual real structural change of you don't get to exclusively have this language be the official language since it's mostly you that use it you are now going to use the common language is that is that kind of a, a accurate dis- depiction of what was happening there absolutely but not only was it english south africa has got 11 official languages So now you've also got all of these languages that represent the multitude of tribes in South Africa that are given equal platforms. All all are important. And because the majority of people in South Africa are not Afrikaners, Afrikaans then just like occupies and is relegated to a status of non-importance anymore. Um, Maybe to also illustrate to your listeners how how powerful Afrikaans was as a tool of oppression – um, in the 1970s, 1976 in particular, June 16 is a very important day in South Africa's history, and that is when many young students took to the streets to protest the fact that government wanted to introduce Afrikaans as the medium of instruction. 
and the only medium of instruction. Now, what did that mean? So first of all, it meant that even if Afrikaans was not your native tongue, your native language, it wasn't the language that you grew up in or grew up with, you now would be taught in this language only. But also, if you think about it, Afrikaans is only spoken in South Africa. So what then did that do for any Black South African in terms of their opportunity to gain an education and use what they've learned on the global platform? You couldn't. You couldn't. And so what that then... You were stuck there. You couldn't. You couldn't. Yeah. Pretty much. And and I mean, there, there's, there, there are a lot more nuances there and also how we received an inferior education because the thinking was that as black people, we didn't have the mental capacity. We didn't have the ability to become doctors and engineers and, and all of these wonderful things. We were right, only good right. enough to be workers. And so our education was dumbed down to only enable us to do that. Anyway, so when you see how powerful a tool of oppression um this language was and then you fast forward to a place where not only now is this language being um, put on equal platform with other languages or rather should I say these other languages are now elevated to a place of importance your language is being rejected your culture is being rejected and so even though you may have said and you being the the young um, white Afrikaner people you may have said okay but it's not my fault it's my forefathers who instituted this you're feeling very threatened and the position could have been which I think ultimately it was what is now my place do i have a place now in this change the change was good it was necessary and it had to happen but they felt out of place well and especially if they've been oh by the way folks i know i forgot to so uh ask any questions you have of me or olga and uh and give us your thoughts and we will tell you if you are right or wrong now um uh i usually open the show with that and i I realize i forgot that so in their mind, especially if they've been told their whole lives, you're superior, these are an inferior people, we're actually doing them a favor by running this system for them because God knows they can never do it on their own. And so now you're being told, no, actually now they're pretty much going to be in control of it for no other reason than just numerical advantage. And uh, your 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 language now really doesn't matter that much anymore. Uh, we're going to be using the common English tongue as well as all these, you know, uh, the various languages of the of the different tribes that live here. And, and pretty much you're being brought to basically the same status as everyone else slowly over time that can look like you know there's a common phrase you know if you've been on top equality can look like oppression and so for a lot of them they were feeling uh, oppressed or at least relegated and now here you are someone who even in the midst of being told we're trying to work towards equality is still feeling the sting on your end uh, of of people still trying to tell you no you're black you're lesser than because you're black there's nothing you can do about it and you had a thought of empathizing with the people doing that and trying to get to where their mindset is and meet them where they are and and as a result you were able to actually have a a fruitful and and productive professional relationship with them and and hopefully also I would I would think help open up their mindset to the idea that black people are not this abstract thing to be put over here. They're actually human beings and maybe hopefully opening up for them to empathize with you as an individual and you as, you know, you and other black people as, as black people. Um, there's many lessons there. And it's something I talk about a lot with folks, you know, in growing our movement, the Liberty movement, um, that we have to empathize with people. You know, we get frustrated by what we're seeing. We're a, we're a, um, political or ideological minority, which is much different than being an intrinsic minority, but we share a frustration of, in terms of 
most people don't think like us. And that can be frustrating to us. But I tell people, as frustrated as you are, you have to meet people where they are because they have valid concerns that and objections that we need to be able to talk about. And you're, you're, you take that way past anything I try to tell people. Um, so coming to the U.S., uh, and, and, and we, we can talk about what brought you here, but you know, coming to the U.S., what are the things that you see that are similar and, and that are different especially in terms of, I mean, you can say, take this wherever you want to, but especially in terms of like racial relations in the U.S. compared to South Africa, what, what's the same, what's different? And you can also talk about what, what brought you here as well. Okay. Uh, maybe let me start with the latter and we can get that out the way. So sure. um, I'm an attorney by profession in South Africa. I practice banking and finance law for close on 10 years. And then I was like, uh, I can't do these 16 hour days. That's just not, um, yeah. I just, I need a life. Um, and I wanted to feel as if I was actually contributing to the individual. I was making an impact in individuals' lives. I mean, I was part of an incredible team at an incredible law firm, Weber Wenzel was um, at the time the top law firm in South Africa. Um, but I left because I was like, I need some human interaction and not just sitting behind a laptop. And so I did um, community development as well as working with companies as a consultant with regards to black economic empowerment again a conversation for another day but that was and still is South Africa's legislative attempt to correct the wrongs of apartheid by um incentivizing as well as encouraging and some people will also say penalizing companies if they don't have the correct number of black people in various positions throughout the company okay. but also in terms of their skills development and work that they do in um, in society now, um, I did that for a little bit and then I was like, huh, Olga, you need some business skills. And so then I came to the United States, Virginia Beach in particular, to study towards a master's in business administration with a focus on entrepreneurship um, and sustainable development. And um, in that process, uh, there was a young man who, if I may say, was <laughs> kind of stalking me on, on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> I actually met his dad, uh, Pastor Dumi Sunny Washington, um, online. And when, when you do have me back as Spike for the Zionist conversation, um, you'll yes. hear me reference him. He was somebody who I looked up to as a mentor. And I was like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, Pastor Dumi Sunny Washington. And um, his son then came to to see one of our encounters on Facebook and cut a long story short, he asked, the story goes, he asked who that was because I commented and his dad was like, she's out of your league is who she is. Uh, that then had him stalk me. Oh, I say stalk me. He has, he has a different version, but I say it's his version. This is the truth. Um, he, he, uh, he uh, stalked me for a while. We chatted for a little bit and, and I mean, we look at messages today and I'm like, oh my gosh, I was actually quite bad. I would either initiate a conversation or he would initiate a conversation and Olga would respond three weeks later. Cause I mean, brother man was not in my periphery. Fast forward. Um, he tried, I said, no. And then he had to come back and then I was like, okay, let's give this a shot. And like you said, uh, it moved quite quickly, but for us, it was like, when you know, you know, it moved quite quickly. And um, we got married and um, we got married in my first year of study. Mm-hmm. I gave birth three days after my final paper, my second year of study. Um, and then we now also have been blessed with a six month old. Uh, so my mom's like, I sent you to the States for two years and you just haven't come back. So I'm going on my <laughs> my fifth year living in the States and it's all Josh's fault. Anyway. So, so I, um, I would just, I would, I would like to add something because I feel like I need to defend Joshua slightly in okay. his defense. If I recall, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you did tell him that he was cute. 
I did. I did. So that wasn't, okay. <laughs> that was when I, I told him no for the first time. Uh, he, he held Quite- on to that, which I'm glad he did. I'm a yes. nice girl, right? I've learned the sandwich principle. The sandwich principle is where if you need to tell somebody that's kind of tough, that's not really uh, nice. You start off with something great and then you bring on the meat and that's the difficult part of the conversation. Then you end it off with something nice. So I did. I told, yeah. I did tell him that he was good looking and, and he said that um, that was a sign that there was hope. That there. was, that was the oxygen he needed to survive until you finally gave him a chance. And yes, that is how men work. You, you, you said you are subjectively, according to my opinion, attractive. And that allowed him, that was the, 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 the water and air that he needed to survive <laughs> those long winter months until you finally then said, yes. So anyway, I'm sorry, go ahead. So, so you were in this, so now you're in the States. What are your thoughts about differences and, and, and I guess, uh, uh, um, differences and similarities so before the season i had been to the state several times either on visits or for extended periods of stay but now that um the united states was home i started to see it slightly different right because when i was now married to a black american and and then when i had my boys i'm now raising african-american young men um right. and and so you do see the racism I would be dishonest if I said that there was no racism in the United States of America. I think anybody who denies that fact, frankly, is either ignorant because you haven't experienced it or is is being dishonest. So racism does exist. Um, What was surprising for me, though, was in my head, um, the United States had left a system of oppression from a racist perspective in terms of segregation. So first of all, slavery and then segregation had left it much longer ago versus a South Africa. And there were moments when I was like, hang on, how are you Americans still at a place where um, you are so racially charged and there are these claims of systemic racism and, and everything is racist fault and, and black people can't do anything because the white man and white supremacy and, and all of those various labels. And as a South African, first of all, some of these terms are, are very new, like white supremacy. We, we don't use that language in South Africa. And I was oh, like, okay. hold on, but we we know oppression. I mean, one of the differences people oftentimes ask me, like, although what is the difference between the Jim Crow laws and um, apartheid? Because both were governed in terms of legislation. And the difference is, first of all, in South Africa, it was across the country. It wasn't just in a particular part of the country, right. whereas the Jim Crow laws were predominantly actually only down in the South. But also, right. um, from my understanding, is that the Jim Crow laws were actually unconstitutional. Whereas in South Africa, apartheid was very much constitutional. Like it was, it was morally the right thing to do. Um, and, and so well, enforced, would, it was enforced, or at least it was enforced as such as being, this correct. is the law, this is what's right. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Um, and, and, and so when I came from that, I was like, all right, but it seems like there's a different type of oppression, first of all, that existed, but then also how have you as Americans not healed? And then also when I looked at the number of Africans and the number of immigrants from different countries who have been able to come to the United States of America and make a name for themselves, despite the various challenges that exist. And yet I still heard of these cries of systemic oppression that are, to be honest, back that confused me. Um, and even as I have continued to learn, and this has not been a very popular conversation that I've had with some of my African-American friends, um, because I think there's this notion that just because you don't come from a particular place, you're not allowed to comment on something. And I'm like, actually, no, one can offer an opinion. um, One can offer an observation. One can offer an experience as well. 
um, in my learning, and that learning predominantly comes from my African-American family, my Black American family, that right. Americans, Black Americans have had amazing opportunities to do various things in America. And that's evidenced by various factors from if you look at Black people that have risen to power in various um, spaces, whether it's on local levels or even all the way up into the White House, when you look at people in various industries and what they've been able to accomplish, has it been difficult? Potentially very much so, yes. But this whole notion of systemic racism here in the United States is very different to um, what I know definitely existed in South Africa. And for me, sometimes it's even questionable as to whether systemic racism does exist here in the United States. Or certainly not as white hot of a, uh, excuse the phrase, as as acutely in existence as it may be, like, for example, in, in South Africa. So there may be uh, some prejudice issues. I, I honestly, and this is my personal opinion, and take it for what it's worth, I, I think a lot of what happens now is more inertia than actual, like, for example, uh, I think more of what's happening now is disproportionate treatment for people based on their income level and their level of wealth, meaning the poorer you are, the worse off you're going to be in a system that's largely based on, you know, getting permission and paying for that permission from government, uh, uh, even in the criminal justice system and so forth, that the poorer you are, the disproportionately worse you're going to be treated. And because of historic things that happened in the past, that, you know, if, if a black person is you know, more likely statistically to be at the lower income levels, then by de facto, you know, de facto, they are going to be more likely to get disproportionate treatment, if that makes sense, as opposed to this law is designed to oppress black people explicitly. It's more this law is or this regulation or this policy is going to just poorly affect poor people. And the, the poorer you are, the worse off you're going to be. And if, you know, people of color are more likely to be poor than that by, def, you know, by extension, then they're, they're going to be. But I'm, I'm not sure there's an actual anything that's still we're going to explicitly target black people. And I, and I may be wrong, but I think especially and it's interesting that someone would tell a black South African who lived during apartheid that their perspective isn't welcome on a discussion about racism. I think that that's an interesting take to, to make. I would think if if I could think of anyone outside of a black American that I would want to talk about race relations, even in the United States, it would definitely also be a black South African who experienced apartheid, no? I was very surprised when it happened. So it was a debate that I had on my wall. And I think to give your your listeners the full context of what had happened, I made the claim, and that's something that I believe, that um, racism is not something that can only be experienced by black people. Racism can be experienced by any race. Right. Um, I firmly believe because within any race group, they're going to be people who are just, they, they're, they're terrible human beings and they're going to treat people um, discriminately and, and whatever. So in making this particular statement, it sparked a debate, fair enough. But when it then came to a place of what felt was a competition of who was the most oppressed, and that's not something that I believe in. I don't wear a badge of oppression. Right. Do I come from a people who were oppressed? Yes. Do I right. come from a system that oppressed us? Yes. Um, did I have experiences and even from time to time still have experiences when I go back home, even here in the United States where it's oppressive or where, where there's prejudice? Yes. But is that a badge of honor that I wear? No. 
Um, it's something that we continue to work against and, and educate people and reach out to people like I illustrated in the story that happened to me um, on college campus many years ago. And it's not one story. There, there are several others like that. But when it started then to become a competition of your story is not as valid as our story, number one. And then number two, and I love my American um, brothers and sisters, there's so much that you guys have got to offer the world. Really, really, really. I mean, if you look at right. culture, how American culture, and specifically Black American culture, has influenced Africa over the years. I mean, it's, it's without a shadow of a doubt. But the one thing that I wish that... Um, people in the United States would learn from Africans, frankly, and, and from people outside of the American borders is the fact that there is this other world that exists. And so there are other perspectives that exist. <laughs> um, and so what I, what I saw on that wall was how very singularly focused various forms of prejudice, as well as um, things that were upsetting can only be viewed and only be experienced through the American lens. And I was like, no, <laughs> yes, you know, my story is real. And I actually had a friend who also contributed um, from an, a minority um, in, in Canada. And his story was wiped out because it wasn't the African-American story. So it was, it was a very weird debate and, and one that sadly um, disappointed me. But hey, I'm not in the business of competing for the, the badge of who's the most oppressed. Well, so this is an interesting perspective. We've we've talked about this. We had talked about this before. There is a very interesting thing in any branch of American culture, including, in my opinion, Black American culture, that we often, as you said, forget that there are other countries on this planet and other people in them. Uh, so we make up about 300 and I think 30 millions, give or take, people. There are 7.6 billion people on this planet, which means we often, in the way that we discuss things, Forget that there are 7.2 something trillion people or billion people on the planet who literally are not us. And I, I notice it even in the discussion. It's in our foreign policy, how we talk about stuff. It's in our economic and trade policy, how we talk about things. But I notice that when uh, uh, people are having discussions about racial relations, there is... It is as though the racism and the effects of racism and the debate over racism, only America matters in that. And they never actually say it that way, but they might as well be. And it's a very, and I've brought it up. And again, I'm a, a white person who has not experienced anything that anyone could ever classify as institutional oppression in any serious way. The worst things I've experienced are some Jew jokes that I didn't find funny, as opposed to the ones I did find funny. So this is, you know, that's my level of oppression in, in my personal life. And, I, and I'm very grateful for that. But so my perspective, obviously, huge grain of salt. You take it with when I'm talking about my opinion or critique of talking about racial relations. But one thing that I have said many times is I would just like everyone to know that we are having a very uniquely American discussion right now. And that the fact that if someone brings up something that's happening in another country, that's being dismissed outright as irrelevant uh, or not the same or not as important 
that is as American as it gets, or or at least as Americentric as it gets as saying like, well, that doesn't matter because that's not the same as whatever thing we're talking. And it's like, actually, that thing's probably way worse, but because it's not something you're experiencing and because you've learned to be an American through and through, that thing doesn't matter because it's not here. Is that is that kind of what you're saying here? Because that's, that, that's what it feels like. No, Absolutely. Um, again, one of the amazing things that Americans have to offer the world is the spirit of patriot, um, patrioti, no, patriotism. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, you're very patriotic for the most part. Um, but when all that matters is the United States of America and, and no other opinion matters and no other country matters and no other history matters and that yeah. is just like, okay, you, you, you need to sit down. Yeah. Well, and the again, these are the ones that aren't necessarily patriotic, but it's that same mindset. It's still that like America is all that matters. So I guess in that way they are patriot, or at least they're. Uh, I guess Americentric is the only way I can say it. Like they're only they're just literally the like even the ones that will say something like America was never great. Okay, great. But then when you'll when you'll and that's their they have the right to that opinion, whatever that even means. Great, whatever. But again when they're t- they, they the same way that someone who would drive around with a american flag cap and a bald eagle you know perched on their shoulder and you know waving around a shotgun with the big gigantic star spangled banner off the back of their pickup truck would talk about the american experience is all that matters these folks would also largely have the same opinion that the american experience is all that matters and i i, I don't I think there's many reasons for that. Um, I think we d- dominate uh, Western culture, uh, and we are tend to be among the wealthiest. Our, our level of what we consider poverty is a joke in most other countries. There, there's there's many different reasons for it, but I it's certainly an ugly thing. And I, I think if if at any point I'm having a conversation about race, and I am telling someone who experienced apartheid that they you know they're they should check their privilege, then I think I'm probably I'm probably off base here. Do, do you think that there is a treatment? Because I don't want to put word in your words in your mouth. I've heard before uh, people that have said that, you know, Africans are benefiting from the struggles that have been done by African Americans in the past in this country. And I, I certainly agree from the standpoint of we don't have slavery, we don't have uh, uh, Jim Crow and, and, and institutional segregation and things like that. Um, but it almost feels like, correct me, it feels like they're telling black people, like, whatever you came from in Africa is nowhere near as bad as anything that ever happened here. Yes. It's, so not only is it not um, anywhere near as bad, but it's also like you have got no rights to dream and to achieve. Because if you dream and you achieve, then right. you're actually doing the ancestors who, if we want to be real, and let's go all the way back to the slave trade, those ancestors came from where? From from Africa. So um, yeah. then also, I, you know, when, when people say that, okay, but you are, and, and yes, I, I, I respect that this is um, how some people feel that you don't have to you don't have to worry about slavery and, and all of those other things, but African Americans today don't have to worry about that. So I, I, I fail to see the rationale with, between those. And, and it, it really is, in my opinion, um, well, let me put it this way. At times it feels like a cop-out. 
It feels like a cop-out for not wanting to work hard, not wanting to have to jump over hurdles that Africans and immigrants also have to. I mean, again, a topic for another day. I can tell you about the hurdles that I had to jump through in order to become a legal citizen, excuse me, a legal right. uh, resident, permanent resident in this country. There were hurdles. And did I sit down and, and sit in the corner and woe is me, woe is me, um, um, the immigration policies of this country are xenophobic and I have to start from scratch and blah, 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 blah. I mean, there, there are days when I, <laughs> I disliked it, but okay, I'll go get up and, and prove your worth. And why well, people on a whole can't do that is, is for me a question. And together with my husband, I really hope that we'll be raising our sons to know that there are always going to be people that are going to be coming for you who are going to discount your worth and discount your abilities and, and who may make rules, whether those rules are morally valid or not, that will try and hamper you. But you need to be like, all right, that's what you think about me. Let me show you. Well, especially, I mean, if you think, and I've said this many times, Let's say that everything they're saying is correct, okay? That there are there is still a cabal of oppressors that are working every day to do everything they can to stop black people or, or even specifically American-born African-Americans, because I've heard that too, that, you know, they're, they're just targeting African-Americans, not black Africans. Which, anyway, uh, let's say that's true. Let's say that's true. Your oppressor, to whatever extent this oppressor exists in any real way, your oppressor would love nothing more, or even just racist people, uh, people that are racist against black, would love nothing more for you to be miserable and to never succeed and to, you know, barely be able to thrive and to only be able to exist on the help and goodwill of others and to, you know, never, never even have dreams, much less meet, you know, uh, accomplish your dreams and to be angry and, and bitter and upset and, 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 you know, end up in prison or just end up in a life of mediocrity. That would be the huge victory for them. If for no other reason than to stick it to them, yeah. you would want to thrive and prosper. And, and I would imagine that's at least part of, you know, what you were being told is like, okay, growing up, like, okay, there are these people that don't want us to do well. We're going to do well anyway, even though it's going to be harder for us than it would be for them. And how foolish are they going to look that we're living as well as them or as close to as well as them and they have all these advantages? So I would think of anything, you know, it's certainly easy for me to say I've never experienced it, but I would hope that for someone in that situation that it would be a, a motivator to succeed and to, you know, do the thing. And, and historically, if you look at what black people in this country have done, uh, certainly in the past, if you look at things like Black Wall Street and the Harlem Renaissance and mm -hmm. and, 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 and even uh, things like Rosewood and all, this was black people who mm -hmm. instinctively knew that every advantage was, every disadvantage was on them to the point of, of local governments looking for excuses to round them up and kill them if they could. And yet they did everything they could to try to thrive. If for no other reason, then that was all they could do. So, and and like you said, there's we could have many different discussions about this. This may have to end up becoming a series. But if I um, could just uh, maybe sure. just interject with one other thing there, um, it's sure. like, you know, one of the questions that I have when people just want to bemoan. So I'm talking about doing more than just being like, ah, the situation is not great. We need to do something about it. But just want to sit there and complain and complain and complain. What does that do for your children? How does that move? How does that move us forward? How does that progress things, right? Um, surely you want a situation, you want a lifestyle, you want a culture that will be less hard for your children. So you do the work so that your children don't have to do the work, number one. Number two, um, if I may share a personal experience that, that also gave me, I think, 
a better understanding of this power struggle, because ultimately it's about power and control in both instances. So if I only claim that I'm the victim all the time, there's a sense of power, there's a sense of control there, because I can um, dictate to people what I want and, and tell them how things need to be. And, and, and so there's this kind of um, feeling of, of you need to listen to me and, and I have the right. mic and I have the platform, blah, blah, blah. So my husband um, went away for a couple of days being a musician that he is, and he left me with the two little babies. Now I say he left me, he didn't leave me. He's, he's a responsible man. But I, for two <laughs> nights, two, three nights, I was- He abandoned with the, you. With little, excuse me? He abandoned you basically for two days. To have fun, to have fun. <laughs> anyway, so um, I'm now home and I've got my two and a half year old and I have, I think at the time Judah was five months and I was like, what am I gonna do? Like I've never been home alone and, and then in the mornings need to get them ready and then work and pick them up. And that's so old as I get frazzled. For me, it was a case of, all right, get up, do what you need to do and take it hour by hour. Was it hard? Yes, it was. But by the end of the time that he was gone, he being Josh and he came back, I was like, babe, I did it. So for me, it was actually, it was both <laughs> empowering, but I'll be honest. I thought about if I was going to tell him that I was actually able to cope. Why? Because now that I was able to cope without him, he then possibly doesn't have to do as much around the house anymore because I can actually do it. But then where's my power to be like, you have to do this. You have to do this. You have to da, 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 da. Do you get what I'm saying? So it was, I, I had yeah. to let go of some control. <laughs> I had to let go yeah. of some control because then I would choose to be empowered to say, Olga, you can do this. Right, right, right. But in doing that, I had to let go of the control to be like, I need you or, or I can't boss you around anymore. Or, or I can't demand that you do various things because actually I don't need you. So it was an interesting, interesting tension for me. And I think that at times when people that have been oppressed and, and still may from time to time experience prejudice, they, they have to think and be like, you know what? I'm actually going to let go of this control of complaining and woe is me and beating my heart and people can feel sorry for me and do all of these things for me and actually be like, you know what, I can do this for myself. And there's a different type of not only liberation, in my opinion, that comes from that, but a different type of empowerment that comes from that if people will only dare. So you had to give up your bargaining chip with your husband that like, I can't do this on my own. You need to help me. But in doing so, you actually are more empowered in doing it. Now, I've been married enough, long enough to know that that will still you're still going to use the bargaining chip. Like I, 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 <laughs> I know I, oh, other I know things. It'll be other go things. away. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. What were you saying? What was your last thing? Oh, no, I was just, I was just going to say that the bargaining chip will be for other things. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. No. The you. It is what it is. Uh, I, I I learned that long time ago. I gave up my control and power a long time ago. It doesn't exist in any real way. Uh, I am the man of the house, whatever that, whatever that's even supposed to mean. Uh, but uh, and that's a fantastic. I'm and I couldn't be happier. Uh, something Janet uh, Janice McKenzie said in the comments. She said, you know, racist, miserable people are basically mentally ill. It's a it's a form of mental illness. So why are you letting mentally ill people dictate how you're going to live? Like, do your best to not let their mental problems. You know, uh, you know, even if it means you have to work harder, just go ahead and work past it. So I, I wanted yeah. to to talk about before we because I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, what's happening in South Africa right now? I think most of us have seen uh, have seen the images of and I don't know how widespread it is. You know, when you watch it online, they make it look like it's happening all over the country. I don't know if it's in just a specific area or across the whole country. But in reaction to the uh, arrest of the former president, uh, Jacob Zuma, I think his name is. Um, mm -hmm. th there have been riots and, and protests across the country. Um, 
the imagery makes it appear as though South Africa is burning down to the ground. But I have watched them do the same thing where, you know, places that I literally was campaigning in last year, I'd have people, you know, frantically contacting me uh, and saying, you know, you can't do an event in Portland. It's burning to the ground. And I'm like, I'm in Portland right now. That's happening in a five square block area over there. We're fine. So if you can give me your thoughts on that, what what is it that you know about what's happening over there? Is it widespread? And what do you think? think the issue is there that needs to be dealt with? All right, as succinctly as I can, um, and again, some background for your uh, viewers that may not be familiar with South Africa's politics. So our current president is President Cyril Ramaphosa. Before he took office, we had President Zuma, who was in office for uh, two terms. And in those terms, he didn't complete a second term, but in those terms, there was a lot of corruption, a lot of looting that happened under his helm. Um, and then there have been um, allegations that he himself was involved at some levels in that corruption. And so after he um, stepped down as our president and Cyril Ramaphosa took over, even though the ANC continued to be in power. So the ANC right. is still the governing body, uh, the governing party, but just different um, leaders. Um, there was a state of commission <clears throat> that was that was. Uh, that was put in place, the State Commission of Inquiry. Excuse me for one second. I just need to plug in this laptop so that um, it doesn't die. So we die. don't lose you? No we problem. We don't want to lose me. No, we don't want to lose you. You're getting right to the, the part about South Africa. Right. How are we going to do this? Um, okay. So I'm going to go through the comments while uh, while we're having – there we go. Uh, while we're uh, – while uh, Olga is getting her, her stuff together on her side – Thank you. Uh, some comments here. Um, uh, Matt Hicks says, everybody love everybody, damn it. That's pretty succinct, Matt. Thank you. Um, and uh, a lot of comments here saying how fantastic Olga is. This is what happens when I have, like, very bright, brilliant women on my show. No one cares about me anymore, whatever. Um, um, uh, let's see. Um, uh, um uh, Janice says uh, several African languages are whistled to communicate over long distances. Individual languages such as Berber, Arabic, Igbo, Swahili, Hausa. I didn't know that. Um, uh, someone else said racism has no actual base. It is something that is taught. Um, uh, Audrey Treadway says uh, that uh, talking earlier that it was a great way for you to try and connect with them. Uh, business is business and uh, need to get the work done and found a way to meet and work with them even with their apprehension. Uh, that is perseverance. I love it. Awesome. Um, someone actually said something nice about me. They said that they love muddied waters. That's fun. Um, someone actually had some more questions about, uh, she called it affirmative action. That's what we call it in the U.S., but what you were talking about with the racial, I guess, racial hiring equity. Um, that is definitely a subject for another day. That might have to be a whole episode in and of itself to talk more about that. Um, and uh, 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 you're a delight and we can't lose you. I assume that they're talking about you. Um, someone said that we do still care about you. Sure, thank you. Not just, just I said that. Um, someone said we care that you're half pink. I don't, that's not very nice. Um, I'm not half pink. I have vitiligo, okay? And I, that makes me half pink. Um, okay, so we have you back. You are here. 
Thank you for that. So when he stepped down, there was in this uh, commission of inquiry that was instigated and he was told, make an appearance to answer the case that's been made against you. Cut a long story short, he was like, nope, 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 I'm not appearing um, until he was subpoenaed, still didn't go. And then a warrant for his arrest was made because he was found to be um, in contempt of court. And that warrant for his arrest was made by the Constitutional Court in South Africa. That is the highest court in the land. Okay. So his supporters were like, you are um, going after him. He's, um, this is all just politics, dirty politics. You can't touch him. There were threats of violence um, if he was going to be arrested. And in fact, people actually uh, camped outside his home in the province of KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa uses provinces, not states. So in the uh, province of KwaZulu-Natal, which is where he hails, people were parked outside, camped outside his home. But thankfully, he um, gave himself up and he was uh, taken into custody. And what many thought, even though there had been rumors that there was going to be war, should he be arrested? It didn't matter how. Should he be arrested that there was going to be violence? Um in a few days after his his being taken into custody, there was there was terrible riots and not just violent spike where people were, um, you know, throwing stuff and and looting, right. but with violence to the extent that uh, malls were being burnt down and yep. um, different communities were coming for each other. Thankfully, even though it was horrific, it did not spread to the entire country. Uh, the okay. hotspots of the violence, the hotspots of the looting and, and the absolute destruction of property. And unfortunately, there was a loss of loss of lives that happened in the province of KwaZulu-Natal and also Gauteng. So Gauteng is where cities such as Johannesburg are found. And so it happened predominantly in those two places. Okay. Um, the reasons for that, definitely uh, political, uh, people with nefarious political agendas, um, a lot of the looting just made no sense. Um, South Africa, for those who may not know, is regarded as having one of the highest, if not the highest, inequality gaps in the world. So we have the rich, the very, very rich, and then we have the very, very poor, and that gap is massive. Even though South Africa acquired political freedom in 1994, we still have not got what we consider economic freedom, meaning that Black people... Right. Uh, are also experiencing uh, the fruits from an economic perspective of their labor and also opportunities in the land um, benefiting from the resources that exist in the country. And again, there's a lot of factors for that. So there is desperation amongst the poor. Um, but what we saw wasn't just desperation amongst the poor. It was It was just, it was horrible looting. I mean, people using cranes um, or these truck-like cranes, and we have different names for these vehicles. But imagine with me these massive trucks that you would use to pack massive TVs or cars in a warehouse. People right. taking those things. I mean, you're not going to be able to use it. You don't have a house that's going to What gonna are you going to do that. with this thing? But exactly, exactly. So it, it made it made absolutely no sense. So there was a deliberate agenda to destroy um, and to cause racial tension. Fortunately, though, um, many communities got, um, I want to say they, they sewed up, they realized that one, we were heading to some form of civil war, um, yeah. blacks fighting blacks, but also blacks fighting other races. And we had people who were personally armed, standing guard around their homes, standing guard around other people's businesses and saying that even though we don't know who the owner of this business is, it's within our community. And if you want to get to that business, you need to get to us. 
Um, right. So we also saw taxi drivers forming barriers at yeah. malls and saying, you're not going to burn down this mall because where are the people that we commute to and from work? Where are they going to work? And if they don't work, we're not going to have um, work. So that right. quickly then started to happen where everyday citizens stood up and said, no, 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 no. What was unfortunate was how things were able to get so out of hand before government intervened. Um, thankfully, now there is calm, but there are uh, rumors and rumblings that the violence that we saw um, may flare up again because Jacob Zuma is still um, in prison. So this is where I'm confused. I, I've, the things I've heard about Jacob Zuma um, are that he was very corrupt. Um, that he is potentially also a rapist um, and all sorts of like really terrible things about him. And, and I take these things with a grain of salt because there could be a political agenda against him, whatever. Whether or not those things are true, um, okay, Jacob Zuma is black, but Cyril Ramaphosa is black. The ANC is a, I believe, all or mostly black representative party. South Africa is, at least at a national level, run uh, uh, by black people. I don't know if, uh, is it, what's the name of the, the province? Which one? Where Jacob Zuma is? In? Yeah. KwaZulu-Natal. KwaZulu-Natal. I don't, I don't know if that's also run primarily by black people. Um, it but, is. Okay, so this is, because I keep hearing it's about racial tension, but it's, it's, and again, I don't know the different tribe relations or anything like that, but it seems from my very white, very, or pink, very American standpoint that this is a black government that is arresting a former black official and, 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 and black people are rioting mostly against other black people because this is a overwhelmingly majority black country. Where is the, is there, is there a racial aspect to it? And if so, why am I, how am I missing this? So the racial aspect comes in, remember I spoke about the fact that people are not experiencing economic freedom. The racial right. aspect will come in where people will say, um, there's this white monopolist capitalism, right? Uh, the white man's capital and the white man still pulls the strings with regards to businesses and how businesses are doing. So that's okay. where the racial element creeps in. But to your point, you are absolutely correct. And how I'm hoping that most South Africans are starting to see that there's a reason for Jacob Zuma's popularity, which I'll speak to in a moment. But okay. you are 100% correct that in a country that is 88% black, black <laughs> right. government, been a black government since 1994. Right. We have a black president now. Jacob right. Zuma's black. Right. The head of the police is black. Right. The police that arrested him were black. I mean, it's, it's black, right? That's who we are. So it was black. So, I just keep seeing black people. Yeah, I, I saw a handful of, of white taxi drivers and a handful of white people that were like on their rooftops with guns in case the riot made its way to their neighborhood or whatever. Those are the only white people I've seen in everything that I've seen. It's been all black people. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so so the the problem is definitely, in my opinion, not a racial thing. Um, there's there's okay. many issues of corruption. There are many issues of even tribalism. Um, again, conversation for another day. And it really yeah. is, in, in my opinion, an example of how even within a particular race, you can have problems of how people treat each other and how people are governed and, and yeah. how people view each other. Um, the white man did wrong, all right, on the African yeah. continent. Yep. But not everything is a white man's fault. Let's be honest. 
It's about time, and I say this very humbly, it's about time that Africans and Black Africans in particular start taking some responsibility for where we are. Yeah, I, so so then we're not the only country, um, well, I don't I don't know how much I want to say this. I'll go ahead and say it. So, so we're not the only country where, where often the, the blame is put on someone that may not necessarily them be at fault. I, I do understand also Jacob Zuma off, often did a lot of racial rabble rousing, and I can't mm-hmm. help but suspect that might also be part of it, is that maybe the current president, Ramaphosa, maybe isn't quite as rabble rousy, and therefore he's being, you know, accused of being cozy with the white man or something like that. Is that maybe possibly part of it? or? So, so I spoke to um, why Jacob Zuma is still popular. He was really viewed for most people as the people's president as a president of the poor man, as a president of somebody who um, would care about not just the middle class, but but really the poor. Whereas um, Cyril Ramaphosa very quickly after South Africa went into democracy, he was able to acquire immense wealth, immense wealth. And so he's a little bit more detached from the ordinary citizen, the ordinary black person on the street. Um, and, And so then there is this tension, you know, let's go back to this whole white monopoly capital. Uh, so, you know, he's seen as, as being in the white man's uh, back pocket and, and, and doing things that predominantly serve the white agenda in, in South Africa, whereas Jacob Zuma was somebody who served predominantly the black people. But then I asked my fellow black South Africans to say, OK, but let's talk about the corruption and the looting that happened under his watch. Right. I'm not saying that Sir Ramaphosa's got it perfect. No, he's got some problems. Again, story for another day. But yeah. this this height that we have elevated uh, former President Jacob Zuma, and actually it's not that many South Africans. Most of them have have um, caught, caught on to the fact that, you know what, his relationship with the Guptas and various other things that he did were, were not, um, if I may say, were not kosher. Um, but he still has got a very, specifically in KwaZulu Natal, he's still got a very strong following, a very popular following. Okay, so this was not, and this is, I've learned this with, you know, especially on social media and, and media in general, you know, you can do some videos of a handful of things and make it look like this is happening everywhere. This was not widespread. This is not all of black South Africa is revolting against the system, blah, 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 blah. Okay. All right. So that, that and the fact that it, it from what I've understood, it's pretty much over, at least for now, lent itself to the idea that the people that were telling me that this was you know, because I was being told, you know, you should cover this, you know, on my social media. This is a, a, a racial civil war that's happening. And they're showing me these videos. And I'm saying, these videos look terrible. Uh, they look like some extremely terrible riots and looting that are happening. By the way, the word you were looking for is forklifts. Uh, forklifts. Thank you. That they forklifts, were stealing. yes, sir. They were stealing. Because that's, the average person needs a forklift, right? Um, you know, I, I can see stealing a TV. I, mean, I can't see stealing a forklift. I don't, I don't, I mean, you shouldn't but steal stealing a TV, a TV that's bigger than the size of your living area. I mean, that's for real. I mean, listen, it's a surra- it's an, it, then it becomes immersive, right? Because it's the whole wall. Anyway, whatever. I, so, so, a for- but a forklift, yeah, you don't need a forklift. So, okay. So that, that explains that. Um, and I, I guess, so I guess the, uh, I, I I don't. I, this has been such an incredible conversation. I before I let you go, and I am so grateful that you that you are on, and that your that your 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 very attractive husband has allowed uh, this time you to have this time with with us and the and the followers here. Um, we'll have to thank him personally. Uh, we'll actually be listening to his music during the outro. But before I let you go, uh, I want to give you a chance uh, to give any final thoughts, anything that you want to impart, leave our our with our our audience with um, Olga Meshway Washington. I think I said it again correctly. Uh, the floor is yours. 
Well, Spike, if I can address you first, um, you know, when people talk about showcasing Africa, even if it's not in a positive light, or at least in relation to an event that's going on, um, to the extent that it fits within what you're wanting to communicate to your viewers, I would encourage you to do so. Um, and, and more so to bring to the fore many of Africa's struggles because there are struggles that Africa is having that unfortunately don't currently fit the narrative of what people want to see on, on uh, mainstream media. But Africa's, Africa's good. We're going to be okay. Um, to your listeners, thank you for ensuring that an incredible person like Spike is able to have this platform. Um, and I would encourage you at any opportunity, especially if you are parents or people that have got influence with young people, tell those young people that there is nothing that they cannot do. And that in doing that, let them be kind to the person next to them. Um, I'm looking forward to a society where we can encourage each other, where we can compete because it brings out the best in each other. And yeah, let's work forward in terms of not only continuing to make um, America a place that many people look up to, um, but also a place that can positively influence other people, other nations. That's fantastic. You're you're amazing. I know you can't run for president because you weren't born here, but you know maybe if I get elected president, then I change the rules. End of the constitution. The <laughs> I change that. Then you can. Change, yeah, it's, well, well, it'll be a. It'll be a. It won't be nepotism because we aren't technically related, but it will be kind of a, a self-serving thing. So uh, again, thank you so much, Olga, for for coming on. You are fantastic. Stick around. We're going to talk during the outro, folks. Thank you so much for tuning into this amazing episode of My Fellow Americans. It's amazing because you're here. So uh, be sure to tune in tomorrow, uh, Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern for the Writer's Block. Matt Wright is going to be interviewing, I know this, Randall Daniel, the uh, chair of the Libertarian Party of Kentucky. He will be on tomorrow. Uh, and then Friday at 9.30, uh, tune in to Cajun and Eskimo from Bayou to Igloo. Then this weekend, there's nothing. I'm not going anywhere. There's no shows. Just enjoy your weekend. I'm going to enjoy mine because I, I literally don't have to go anywhere for like the first time since like June. And I'm so excited. I'm going to sleep mostly. You can catch me sleeping. Uh, and then on Monday, tune in right back here, 8 p.m. Eastern for Mr. America, The Bearded Truth with Jason Lyon. I don't know what he's going to be talking about, but it's going to be fantastic. I do know that. Uh, join us right back uh, on Tuesday at 8 p.m. for the Muddy Waters of Freedom where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the sweet little cherubs that we, that we try to be. Uh, and then right back here next Wednesday, same spike place, same spike time for another fantastic episode of My Fellow Americans. I can't wait to have you back on. Thanks again uh, for joining us. I'll see you next week. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys. It might fit. We might just unite and come together and become high.
Sometimes darkness is all I find. You know what they say about an eye for an eye in a time with the blind be the blind. Who am I to deny? I would cry when a loved one dies. I recognize that body outside. When the holes in the body that was alive. Now we find them with chalk outline. Find out how, but you never know why. It ain't even make it to the news at night. It ain't even make it to the news at night. That's my sister, mother, father, brother, son. That's one of mine. All these tears, I close my eyes. Open up the only find. I'm in line. There's a pointless murder happening all the time. Either lose your life or mine. Caught up in the first inside. That ain't how it started now. How were we supposed to survive? There's a war going on outside. Who would want to raise a child? Whom the throne is flashing by? Now you have to say goodbye when you watch them on the news and five. Don't tell me how. Tell me why. We will make